good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So we are turning again in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll read the Word of God together. Philippians chapter 2. Um, we're reading verse number one. And again, just remind you all that we are, uh, again, still really in our studies in the Songs of Degrees and the Psalm 133 that, again, extols the virtues of Christian unity. Uh, it is good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so Philippians chapter 2 is here because we believe that the ultimate sense of the brethren dwelling are those who are brothers and sisters together in Christ Jesus. And therefore, the psalm is to be true. It is to be true in the context of the local church. It's true for us here in Malvern. And therefore, that in mind, uh, we turn to, again, a New Testament epistle that's dealing with the subject of unity. And again, that is a very dominant theme in this letter of Paul to the church in Philippi. He deals with really, I suppose you could say, maybe three main themes, evangelism, uh, unity and joy. And again, those th three things are very closely connected, of course, even in this port part of God's Word. But Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 1, it says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also in the things of others. And let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. May God indeed bless his word to our soul's uh, benefit tonight and bless us together as we meet around the word. The subject of unity again comes in a form of a command in verse number two. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. The command, of course, is uh, that Paul would experience the joy of seeing uh, those under his care uh, being in unity in the work of God. Uh, the heart of the apostle is such that his joy is in spiritual things, and he desires that joy, that spiritual joy, of seeing his, uh, again, those under his care, uh, that they're in a state of unity, being like-minded. And thus the command itself, uh, whilst it be the word fulfill, my joy, of course, continues on to the sense of being like-minded. And therefore we are not wrong to say that Paul is commanding here uh, that God's people be like-minded. It is not something we should think of as being a natural thing. And whilst, again, we see the work of God in our hearts, it does lead to unity. Yet even within the people of God, they must endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He's given these arguments to begin with, that what the foundation of their unity is, is the blessings they enjoy in Christ. 
And he listed four in verse number one, consolation, comfort, fellowship, and this joint term, bowels and mercies. In essence, what he is doing, he is telling the people that their unity is based upon all that they have enjoyed together in the gospel. That together they were weak, together they were suffering, together they were distressed, and together they received consolation, comfort, fellowship, and then this term, bowels and mercies. It is a reminder to us that our unity is preserved, at least in part, when we remember that we're no better than each other. In the sense in which we all mutually needed these various things that, uh, again, without the blessing of God, we were nothing. And without the blessing of God, we will be in ruin and misery. But in light of these blessings, these blessings that are shared, these blessings that are Trinitarian, the love of God, uh, the consolation of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, in light of these blessings, we are then encouraged to be like-minded. And thus, if you are a recipient of consolation or comfort, etc., then it is your obligation to ensure a like-mindedness within the Christian community. Which then leads us on to the considerations tonight, and that is at least beginning to consider the essence of Christian unity. And that's here in verse number two. What does Christian unity look like? Well, Paul says that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I suppose in many ways there are four descriptions of this unity, but the primary word is this word like-minded, and then in that like-mindedness there is the same love, the same one accord, and of one mind. But before we get uh, to the subject of what it means to be like-minded, I think it may be helpful to remind ourselves of what unity is not and cannot be in light of other scriptures. And there are three things I want to leave with you tonight as we consider this subject of being like-minded. And I suppose in many ways I'm, I'm diverting away again from another text. We've gone from Psalm 133 to Philippians 2, and now we're going into other directions. But we must be careful that we do not misapply this term to be like-minded. And there are things that we should not, we should not remove Uh, in order to preserve some sort of so-called Christian unity. There are three things. Unity is not to be promoted at the expense of diversity. Secondly, unity is not to be promoted at the expense of purity. And thirdly, unity is not to be promoted at the expense of orthodoxy. So those three things are what I want to leave with you tonight. And to begin with then, I want to, to consider the subject that unity must not be promoted at the expense of diversity. I suppose in simple terms, unity is not uniformity. And there are differences within a true church of Christ. And those differences should not remove unity. And unity should be preserved even in the context of those differences. There are differences, for example, of background, differences of ethnicity. You consider uh, Revelation 14. Look, turn look, turn over Revelation chapter 14, Revelation 14, the verse number 6. And here you see a prediction of the company of the redeemed. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. So here we're told what we're seeing here, we're seeing heaven. And what do we see in heaven? Have an everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. 
It is the purpose of God that the gospel goes to every nation, kindred and tongue and people. And we see that back in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and the verse number 9. And they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. This, of course, is the Lamb. And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And it is the company of the redeemed together that can describe themselves as being out of every kindred, tongue and people and nation. And of course, what is true in heaven must be true of the church here on earth. And thus Galatians chapter 3 reminds us that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The unity of the church is a unity that must overcome cultural divisions. And I was conscious, very conscious, that in Northern Ireland we had our own cultural divisions. They were not necessarily of ethnicity or skin color. We were all Caucasians. Uh, we were all, in essence, of the, of the same uh, background. And yet background had a massive impact upon the church. The Roman Catholics did not feel they could uh, come into a Protestant church. And the challenge we faced was that we had to ensure that our doors were open to people of whatever culture they came from. And we face the same challenges today. Now, the unity must not be promoted at the expense of diversity. Unity is not uniformity. And therefore, if we're bringing the gospel to all people, then there ought to be efforts made to bring the gospel to those of all sorts of backgrounds. That there can be unity in Christ, despite there being a diversity of backgrounds. Again, that subject, of course, could, uh, could take us far and wide tonight. I simply mentioned it to you that our unity must be in the presence of a difference. Differences in our backgrounds. Unity is also not uniformity of opinion. And there should not be, again, the dispensing of diversity of opinion in matters of uncertainty or matters of conscience. Turn, turn back to Romans 14. Christian unity must be maintained. And this is an issue that really must come with particular relevance to us at all times. But Christian unity must be maintained even when believers may differ on certain matters. Now, Romans 14 is a, is a lengthy chapter, I suppose, that deals with the differences between eating meats on certain days that were being upheld. For example, you verse number 5, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, Whatever the particular setting of these days, uh, they may be referring to, to Jewish ceremonies, they may be referring to other feast days, whatever the case may be, one thing is clear. Paul does not accuse either party of being guilty of sin. Now, how they regard the day is important. You regard the day, you do it unto the Lord, verse 6. You regard not the day, it's unto the Lord. So he's not saying that the days are unimportant. He's not saying their activities on those days are unimportant. But he's saying that Christians can differ on issues with both parties not being guilty of sin. Again, I think back to, to my early childhood. And some of these things are, are, are still divisive issues in the church uh, across the Western world. There are some 
And they'll be very, very clear uh, that a Christian is sinning if they own a television set. And I suppose today a more modern view may be those who engage in the use of the internet. And they are guilty of absolute sin. And others with a clear conscience say, no, I'm not guilty of sin. The issue itself is, is, is not the, uh, the device, it's how I use the device. But there are Christians who will differ on these things. There may be differences regarding the, the wearing of trousers. Sorry, pants for ladies. I keep forgetting the terminology. So, so ladies are wearing, are wearing pants and that, that's a, a forbidden thing for many. But it's not a forbidden thing for others. There are differences of opinion. The issue, of course, is modesty. Not necessarily the particular apparel that is worn. It might be, again, I knew some uh, Christian families who felt that Christians were wrong to eat pork. Well, there's no issue with eating pork. Uh, again, I could list a number of, a number of things. And we could go back over all of them. You know, all I'm saying is that there are issues that are secondary, matters of indifference, and yet, sadly, they are issues that divide people within churches. And there are those who hold certain days special. And those who don't hold those days special, you know what days I may be talking about. Uh, and those days are, are again, they're, they're coming out of division. I'm just making the point that unity must be maintained by respecting differences, not by removing them. And Paul is clear here in, in Romans chapter 14 and other portions that there are issues that are not issues of absolute sin. And thus there may be differences, and yet those differences should not hinder the unity in the church of Jesus Christ. One last thing regarding diversity may be the issue of diversity of gifts. And uh, hence, rule. Uh, you take Ephesians chapter 4, we could turn to various portions of God's Word. And you've got 1 Corinthians 12 in a similar fashion. But in Ephesians chapter 4, you have the exhortation in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he, he lists again these theological grounds for why there is this unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And thus, he then begins to say that there are differences of gift and differences there of roles. And the roles in the church may differ, but that should not impinge upon unity. Again, you think of the issue of male and female. We are one in Christ. There is unity in terms of our standing in Christ, but yet there is not unity in terms of biblical office. And uh, again, the offices that are held in the church are to be held by men, not because they're better than women, but because God has assigned these differences of roles within the church. And sometimes unity is impinged because there can be a spirit of jealousy within the church. So-and-so's got this role or that role. Uh, I want that role for myself. And there's a jealous spirit. And what happens? There is division. And so what I'm saying to you is like-mindedness in Philippians chapter 2 does not remove this diversity of background or opinions or of certain gifts and roles. I hope you see that. I hope you appreciate that. But however we interpret like-mindedness, it does not mean that we are all the same. It does not mean that we're all clones of one another. Uh, and again, when you have uh, that spirit of cloning in the church, uh, sometimes it can be because uh, there is not a, a right appreciation of the healthy diversity that should exist in a Christian church. 
However, moving on, unity in the second place is not to be promoted at the expense of purity. Purity. Speaking here, of course, of purity in the church membership. There should be within our church a commitment to both unity and purity. We need to see that church discipline needs to be exercised so that people are excluded from the visible union within local churches. Again, this is a difficult issue. Unity is not preserved at the expense of the church's purity. And again, you take a portion like 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the verse number 2, uh, the rebuke comes regarding fornication. And to the church ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be, listen to this word, might be taken away from among you. Now this, this gentleman is a professed brother. Verse number 11 says, If any man that is called a brother... So here you have someone who is claiming to be part of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Someone who claims to have the kindred spirit within him who claims to have the same father. Hence, happy to call himself a brother. But due to sin, there is a question mark regarding the veracity of their claim and profession. And what has happened to them? Well, we, we have it told for us in verse number 11. With such an one, no, not to eat. And again, we can debate as to the right meaning of that word to eat, but it's generally appreciated uh, that that's referring to the exercise of the Lord's Supper. That place where unity is expressed in a very visible sense. We, we share the same bread, we take the same cup, and we have that unity in Christ around the table. Well, here's a brother professed, he was told not to eat with the church of Christ. And thus, there must not be an artificial preservation of unity at the expense of purity. Unity does not mean that discipline should not be exercised. You have other portions like second, well, you turn over to Second Thessalonians chapter 3, just to see the, the actual terms that are used here. They are terms that seem to go against the preservation of unity. You have there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and the verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every, and again another term, from every brother that walketh disorderly. Withdraw yourselves. Actively ensure that there is not a visible unity when there should not be such unity. You see, an objection to church discipline is that it is divisive. Now, I accept that there are occasions when church discipline may be divisive. Pastors and elders can be bullying and harsh in their discipline. Their discipline can be unwarranted. I suppose like a father can be overly harsh in his family with his children and such harshness can, can divide families and cause resentment. Well, so yes, a church leadership may be guilty of causing division by their harsh discipline. But biblical discipline, as we have seen it in these verses, should lead to the removal of the offender for their spiritual restoration. 
so that unity is broken so that it can be reestablished, so they can repent and come back to that place of fellowship with the people of God. The problem that we face is not with uh, church discipline, it is with the definition of unity. And we should never see the command to unity as a reason to disobey the command for church discipline. And so God forbid that this will happen in, in this place, but it may well, it may well happen in the, in the days, the months to come, that we have to engage in the difficult exercise of church discipline. I trust that we will have no one come along and saying, Pastor, you must maintain unity. Purity, purity must not be removed in order to preserve some sort of so-called unity. So unity is not to be promoted at the expense of diversity, nor at the expense of purity. And in the third place, it must not be promoted at the expense of orthodoxy. And what do I mean, of course, by orthodoxy? I mean, I mean straight teaching. I love the, the, the derivation of this word orthodoxy. We, we have the word ortho we use in, in certain things. We talk about orthopedics. Again, the origin of that term was uh, because the first surgeons, they treated children who had, had bent bones due to rickets. And thus their duty was to straighten children. Orthopedics. Uh, and they straightened the children. And we may have orthodontists who straighten teeth. Well, here orthodoxy refers to straight teaching, straight doctrine. You see, the matter, the matter of inter-church fellowship, again, should not be at the expense of orthodoxy. Some would suggest that our standards as a free Presbyterian church is a denial of Christian unity and a dividing of the body of Christ. Ecumenism is often defended because of a so-called unity on the ground of taking the name Christian. And if you simply have the name Christian, then you should defend biblical unity. But that is not the case, and you know it very, very well. Let's put it in a very local sense. Should we accept into membership someone who says they're a Christian without any consideration as to what they believe? So you get someone, they apply for community membership, they want to join the church. Should we make any consideration as to what they believe? Well, of course, it is vital that we explore the issue as to what people believe so that there is not disunity in the name of unity. And there must be a unity over certain things. You take Titus chapter 3. Just see what the Word of God says again regarding this subject. Titus chapter 3 and the verse number 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. And someone who's a heretic, they should not be received, they should be rejected. Oh yes, even for the heretic there should be the exercising of patience. There are two admonitions mentioned here before they are rejected. But... There is rejection nonetheless. The word heretic is an interesting word. Again, the, the derivation of heretic back into the, the original comes from the word to choose. And it seems to be either the heretic is someone who has chosen a path away from the accepted or someone who causes others to make a choice. So they present another view. And they present a view that's away from orthodoxy. And they present that view and they say to people, make a choice. You can follow the old accepted paths of orthodoxy or you can follow my new ways. And thus they divide the church 
by making them make a choice. And that's the word heretic, I believe, has in its very core of its meaning this idea of division. And thus to remove the heretic is not to deny unity, it is to preserve unity. Someone teaching error has the purpose of dividing the church of Christ. Turn to, to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, the verse number 17. And again, you'll see this matter of preserving unity. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. And how do they cause divisions? Well, it's contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. And avoid them. You know, the offenses refer to stumbling blocks. So this matter of those who cause divisions are those who are causing division by presenting error regarding the gospel. I've already said there are things that Christians can differ on, and there still be unity. But there are those things which cause division and offense that are contrary to the doctrine that we must not allow, no matter what somebody might call themselves. Even the Mormons, they call themselves Christians. They say they believe in the Bible. Uh, they say they have a, a belief in the, the blood of Christ. But they are heretics. We must not promote unity with them, no matter what they may call themselves. And the same is true with Roman Catholics. Well, they say well, they're more Christian than Mormons. Well, barely so. They have no understanding of the truth of the gospel. They deny the gospel in its veracity. And thus, there must be no unity. And thus, whilst we may delight to live at peace with all men, the peace in the church is a peace that is grounded upon truth and not upon a visible unity that dispenses with truth. Historically, fundamentalism arose in the early parts of the, of the last century in response to modernism, and it stood particularly for certain fundamental doctrines, the inerrancy of the Bible, the literal nature of the biblical accounts regarding miracles and creation, etc., the virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection and physical return of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. You deny these fundamentals, and you cannot be like-minded with such, no matter what they may claim to be true for themselves. So unity and being like-minded is not to be promoted at the expense of diversity, purity, or orthodoxy. We want to preserve unity, but we want the right sort of unity, biblical unity. Not unity in name, but unity in spirit. And so Paul says that we are to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. It is a spiritual unity grounded upon truth and grounded upon a common experience of redemption. And that unity is to be delighted in and preserved with all of our hearts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 
or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.